Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the reality. Jesus is the dividing line. Who Jesus is, is of the utmost importance. What he has done is of the utmost importance. It's not a trivial matter. It's not just, well, that's kind of nice that he did that and it's good for some. No, it is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of temporal life versus eternal life. Jesus says, if you believe that I am resurrected, that I can resurrect, that I am life and the life giver, you shall live. If not, you will die. You will perish. It's not that Jesus says, I've come to condemn. That's not what he's come. We already stand condemned, according to John 3. We stand in the condemnation of God. And what makes us right with God, what makes us be able to have a relationship with God, which makes us in the right standing, justified, is what Christ has done. And all Christ says is, do you believe in that? Do you hold on to that? Then he will live. If you stop trying your way and go my way and let me do this, you will live. Otherwise, you will die. It is not a trivial matter. This is not a threat, but it is an invitation by Jesus. Do you believe this? Luke eleven twenty three says this, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather scatters. Are you with Jesus? Are you gathering? What what does it mean to gather? What does it mean to, to bring people to Jesus? And how do you do that? Do you believe that he's the resurrection and the life? Or are you against him? Are you scattering people? Are you repelling people with the way you're living and the way you're speaking? Do you doubt the truth of the resurrection in your life? Do you doubt it with your words? And do you doubt it with your actions? In our sermon series, The Real Last Words of Jesus Christ, we've been discovering the words of our resurrected Lord, Savior, friend, and brother, Jesus. And the first word we heard was that it was a word for the seeker. And Jesus said, whom are you seeking? And he renews and restores and redirects our pursuits in the resurrection. And the second word we heard, a word for the fearful. And Jesus said, do not be afraid. The one that we, only one we ought to be fearful of, God himself. And he says to us, I do not stand to condemn you. I've come to save you. Do not be afraid. I have great news for you. And then the third week I heard a word for the restless. And Jesus declared, peace be with you in the resurrection. On the cross, he allows for the possibility of restored relationship, intimate relationship with him. This overwhelming shalom peace that we get to have with God. And at the resurrection, he actually institutes it, gives it to us. And then last week we heard a word for the troubled. Jesus walking with Cleopas and his wife and in their doubt and in their, in their worry and their anxiety and in their mindset of death, Jesus restores them 
and walks them through the scriptures. With troubled heart, he brings them good news. And just as Cleopas and his wife were saddened and downcast and doubted on the road to Emmaus, Jesus gives a word to the skeptical, to the doubters in this passage this morning. I don't know where you at. I don't know where you're at in your life. Whether in this moment your faith has increased in the resurrection of Christ or whether your faith has waned and decreased or it's tired or whether you have never believed or refused to believe in or you just remain cynical and skeptical about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, you're in good shape no matter where you end because Jesus' closest friends his closest friends that knew him better than anyone else on earth, they doubted. They doubted him. They were skeptical of the resurrection, even when he was present with him. Jesus engaged in their doubt. Jesus was patient. Jesus was loving. And he was kind with them. In their doubt. Let me just say that again. In their doubt, in their cynicism, in their skepticism, Jesus was patient, he was kind, and he was loving to them. He never abandoned them. In fact, he engaged their doubt. He does not abandon us either. And he engages our doubt as well. So after Cleopas and his wife talked to Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they returned to Jerusalem and they gave testimony and witness to the, re, to the, the 11, to the, to the resurrection of Jesus. What they just saw and experienced and heard, they told the rest of the 11. The 12 apostles minus Judas, right? In Luke 24, 36, where we end up right here in our text today, and as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They just weren't startled and frightened. I think that's really undersells this word here. Really those words mean the same thing. Different words. But it's just a double way of saying they were terrified. Extra terrified. When in the midst of this, Jesus suddenly appears and stands among them. They were terrified to their bones, fearful. And unlike Cleopas and his wife, they recognized who it was right away. They knew it was Jesus. But they didn't think it was a physical Jesus. They thought, this has to be a ghost. This can't be a body. This can't be like you and I. This is different. This, this has to be a ghost. Jesus could not be alive, and he could not be resurrected. They couldn't wrap their minds around that Jesus was alive, that he was a physical being. Their mindset still, like Cleopas and his wife, was in death, set on the wrong side of the cross. The, the idea that Jesus could be, phys, could be physically resurrected was beyond their imagination. Even though, I want you to understand, that was beyond their imagination that Jesus could be resurrected. Even though while Jesus was alive, he resurrected at least two people in front of them. Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. They saw both of them dead and then come back to life. 
And yet, they still couldn't wrap their mind around that Jesus, who did those things, was physically resurrected in their midst. It's got to be a ghost. It's got to be a spirit. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, it actually quotes Isaiah 64. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Right? So you and I, we can't even imagine what God has prepared for us. We can't even imagine the plan that he has. We can't even imagine the life and abundance that he will give to us. We can't even imagine the fulfillment of this promise. And so just as the apostles could not imagine that Jesus was resurrected and beyond, it was beyond their comprehension. It was beyond their wildest dreams. That it is what is our life with Christ. It is beyond our wildest dreams. It's beyond that we can ever communicate to anyone the abundant life. The abundant life is not, oh, all the possessions and all the riches. That's not the abundant. The abundant life is actually being in intimate relationship with the one who's the author and creator of life. You and I can never imagine. It's beyond our capability of what life will be like in our resurrection. When we are with him in heaven and then when we're with him in the new earth and the new heavens, physically resurrected. What circumstances blocks your belief? What life events blocks your trust in Jesus? Blocks your imagination? What hinders you in believing in the physically resurrected Christ? Luke 24, 38. And he said to them, he said to them as they thought, this has got to be a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, he's not really asking them this question. This is a rhetorical question. He knows why doubts arise in our hearts and in the apostles' heart. He knows it's because we live in sin because we are in sin. We have hearts turned away from God, turned away from his truth and turned away from life and turned away from each other. Normally, we associate doubting with Thomas, right? We all know the story of doubting Thomas in John 20, 24 to 25. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Unless I see, unless I touch him, I will not believe. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap, right? I mean, he gets that adjective. It's, it's doubting Thomas. But you just read the story today. Every one of them doubted. Every one of them, even though they recognized Jesus' physical presence in their midst, they could not believe it. And they doubted. Why aren't they all? Why isn't it doubting Peter? Why isn't it doubting Andrew? We're all doubters. We all have hearts turned away. Thomas wasn't alone. Thomas isn't alone. There's a veil over our hearts. 
a veil that's caused by our sin. That's caused from our hearts and our minds that have turned away from God and gone from our own direction and just lived a life without any thought or care for God. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Since we have such a hope, what is that hope? That hope's in Christ. That hope's Christ. Since we have such a hope that Jesus defeated death, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to the end. So, right, when, when Moses was in and had the tabernacle and when he would go to engage with God, right, God was there in his presence, overwhelmed with his glory and presence. And so Moses would come out from his, his encounter with God and his face would radiate as a reflection of God's radiance upon Moses. And so Moses would have put a veil to cover it so people would be okay. They would be uncomfortable because they were uncomfortable with Moses looking like that. So they might not gaze. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, when they read the Old Promises, when they read the Law, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lays over their hearts. This idea that, see, when we turn away from God and we, and we don't put it, he's not first in, in our life, he's not the priority in our life. The, the reality is that's because there's a veil over our hearts. And we have, our hearts are hardened. Our heart, which is our mind and our will, our desires and our emotions are turned from God. And so we're blinded from this truth. From, from the law, even when we, when we read the law, right? When we read those Ten Commandments, it's like, oh, this is a list of things to do. And to understand that all the laws were fulfilled in Christ. And that all the laws, he says, listen, it's all about love. All of them. All of them are fulfilled in love. Do you love God and do you love your neighbor? If you're not doing those things, you're not filling any commandment. And if you don't love Jesus, you're not filling any commandment. You're not loving God, nor in your love of your neighbor. There's a veil over our hearts. And so we doubt and so we turn away. In the midst of this understanding, Christ engages the apostles. Luke 24, 39-40. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, and you see that I have. And when, you have, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Three times Jesus said, see, see it, you see it. Why is your heart hardened from this? You actually see me. Touch me too. It goes beyond just seeing, touch me. And he shows them, look at my wounds. This is me. This isn't just a a different me. This is me that was on the cross. I was once dead and now I am alive, which is the promise for you and I. We are dead and we will be alive. Jesus is saying, I am physically present. I have a body. I'm here right now. Let me prove it to you. Let me show you. 
Jesus meets them where they're at. He doesn't, he doesn't say, man, you just have to believe. He's like, listen, okay, I know you're struggling right now. I know there's a veil. I know this is where you're at. Let me show you. Now, go ahead and touch me. This is, this is the foundation of incarnational ministry, that Jesus comes to meet us where it's at. Doesn't let us stay there, but meets us where we're at. And this is what God does from the very beginning. This glorious God, this holy God, this good God. When we turn our hearts and we become sin and death and come separated from him and enemies, God doesn't turn away from us. And no, he has a plan from the very beginning. He actually then becomes one of us, comes and degrades himself in a very blunt way. Degrades himself by, by coming into this human flesh, right? Condescends, becomes like nothing as Philippians 2. To be with us. That's how much he cares. To be with us. That's incarnational, meeting us where we are at. He meets us in our doubt. He meets us on the other side of the veil. And then he removes the veil in our heart. He gives sight to the spiritual blind. He gives faith to the doubts, doubters. And he gives faith to the skepticals. And we all start as doubters. In verse 41 and why they still disbelieved for joy. Just think about that for a second. Right? They actually touched him. They actually saw his wounds. And in the midst of that, the only thing that's changed is they've gone from doubting with terror to doubting with joy. They disbelieved for joy. I don't even understand that phrase. And were marveling and said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And he said to them, have you anything here to eat? So Jesus understands, like, they are still not getting this. Let's, let me ask if I can just eat with them. And just think about, I just want you to think about what. So Jesus admits they're still doubting. They still do not believe that this is a physically resurrected body, even though they've touched him. And then Jesus asked, let's eat. And they were thinking, hmm, you're a spirit, right? Spirits do not eat. So I can just imagine them thinking like, all right, we're going to try this out. This is the last thing. Let's just see because let's just give them some food and see if it just passes right through or right, what happens here. Because this is the last test. If he can eat, then it's legit. Then this is a physical body. This is the last test that he has. And remember, Jesus initiates this. They give him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus encounters them where they're at. And he breaks bread with them. He eats in front of them. This is actually kind of a, a normal thing because... They knew that spirits and ghosts and angels did not eat with them. They knew they couldn't eat. It was different for them. And so even when the story of we have, if you go all the way back to Genesis and the three visitors with Abraham, this, this appearance of God in three people that come to Abraham and Sarah. 
What did they do? They ate with Abraham and Sarah. They broke bread. And many people, most people interpret that this appearance to Abraham was Christ himself in Genesis. In Genesis 18.8, they took curds and milk and the calf and had prepared and set before them and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. As compared to angels, it actually says the scriptures, do not engage in eating with us. In Judges 13.16, and the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the, then offer it to the Lord. <laughs> Moses like, I'm not going to eat your food. I'm not going to eat your offering. This is between you and God. You can offer your food to God and you can eat and reside and be intimate. This idea of that, this eating and being in a meal together is an intimate relational act. And God does this with us. And Jesus, the thing that he breaks through their doubt is, let's eat together. You've seen me, you've touched me, and yet you still doubt. Let's eat together. And in the midst of that, he lifts the veil on their heart. And then he goes on to what, just like he did to Clebus and to his wife, he goes on to explain all of Scripture to them. All of Scripture, how it points to him and points to this moment and points to the resurrection. Every being, everything being fulfilled here. This intimate beginning. This intimate beginning of relationship through eating together. Jesus lifts the veil through the breaking of the bread. He does it with Cleopas and to his wife, right? And Luke 24, 35. And they, then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So even Cleopas and his wife, their last barrier of doubt was done through eating. A breaking of intimate relationship. Jesus takes time. He is patient. He is intimate. And he meets the apostles in their doubt, in their skepticism. This isn't to shame them or to shame us in our doubts, but to realize that he knows that our doubts blind us, our blinds us to the truth and the reality that is in front of us. That even when there's a physically resurrected being, our doubts, our minds will say no until the veil is lifted. We can be blinded by our perspective. We can be blinded by our cultural perspective. By our political perspectives, we can be blinded by those things. We can be blinded by a religious perspective. Through an intimate, loving, patient, listening, kind relationship, Jesus removes the veil from our hearts and redirects, flips us, and moves us into repentance and moves our perspective our perspective into repentance onto him from doubt to faith, from death to life, a new mindset and a new life and a new way. What perspective, what ideology blinds you? What, what hinders you from repenting? What falsehoods, doubts, cynicism, skepticism do you need to repent from and turn to Jesus. 
I could sit down with you and give you evidence and of the proof of the resurrection. I can give you historical proofs of why this is true. And all of that would be helpful. I can give you, there's been over 500 people that physically saw Jesus dead and then saw him resurrected. All of his closest followers, all of them died for this truth. Died for the profession of this truth. That Jesus was dead and then one day he was resurrected. He was alive. That he defeated death. That he was God. All of them died for this fact. Death makes liars change their story. So if they didn't really believe this fact when they were confronted and given the opportunity to either live or die, they could have recanted those stories. But they didn't. They chose death over that. The, there's been a couple of messiahs or people who claim to be messiahs. Jesus is one of them. And there was many before him. But the most famous messiah besides Jesus, the most followed messiah besides Jesus, was 16, in the 1600s, Sabbatai Sebi who was a Jewish uh, rabbi. People followed and loved him and claimed him. Uh, he, claimed, he claimed to be the Messiah at age 22. He claimed it out loud. Now, you know the stories of Jesus. Jesus actually kind of pushes away when people start claiming him Messiah because he, he want, doesn't want people to come to him for those things. Sabbatai actually claimed he could fly too, but he could only fly when people weren't present which is an interesting claim at the best, right? But here's the thing about Sabbatai. People followed him for years, for years. Eventually, in 1666, he was captured by the Turks, and under the threat of his own death, he converted to Islam and recounted his story. Death make liars change their story. Jesus had the opportunity to recant his story. Jesus had the opportunity before Herod, before Pilate, on the cross, to recant. He never does. Because he's not a liar. Because if he was a liar, then everything he said, his way of life would be nonsense. He's not a liar. His apostles had every chance to recant their story to recant their testimony of who Christ was. And they don't. They die for this story. They die for Jesus. My point is not to prove to you that Jesus is Lord, but that, that there's overwhelming, compelling historical evidence and the tr trustworthiness of the Gospels. But all of that, this is just a few, all of that could never prove to you that Jesus is Lord. Because here, I, what, Jesus could be right before you, standing right in your midst, in the physical presence, just like the apostles, and you still wouldn't believe. You still would doubt. Even if you saw and you touched the resurrected Christ, I could not make you believe, nor could I convince you. But my challenge to you is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that Jesus is good all the time. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
Whatever circumstance or situation you're in, whatever doubt or skepticism, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that Jesus is good. Don't just dismiss the resurrection. Don't just dismiss Jesus. Because he's present right now with you. Don't dismiss that. Taste and see. Psalm 34, 14 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Turn away from evil. This is repentance. Turn away from your life. Turn away from all the thoughts that you've had. Turn away from thinking that your way is the right way. Turn away from that evil and do good. And what's good, it says? Seek peace. Restored, reconciled relationship. Pursue it. Put your mind onto that. Turn away from all this and go in the opposite direction and pursue it. Pursue that peace with God. I mentioned that prodigal son story, right? Where the prodigal son says to father, give me my inheritance. Give it to me now. And he goes and he squanders in his inheritance. He goes on his way, forgets about his father, forgets about his family. His father's dead to him. And spends all his inheritance and spends all his money. Squanders it. Has nothing. Begins to live in squalor with pigs. And in the midst of that, the low point of his life. He says, man, I can go back. I can go back and, and my father, I can at least be a, his hired hand, his servant. Not eat from pig. I could do that. And he goes back and he goes back to his father. He doesn't say, go say, give me, give me. He says, father, can you make me? Can you make me a hired servant? And of course, we know what the father does. Like, no, 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 no. You're not my servant. When he sees him off in the distance, he goes, runs to him. You're my child. You're my child. What's yours is mine. We move from give me to Lord make me. Turn from your evil way. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 through 18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, you may be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. What comes first? The turning of my heart or the removing of the veil so I can turn? Which come, it's like the chicken and the egg right here. Which one comes first? Well, neither of them come first. Did you hear at the end? All this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Here's what comes first in your life. The Spirit comes first. The Spirit comes first, and then you're able then to, the veil is removed, and then you're able to even turn your heart. I mean, that's all simultaneously. But the Spirit comes first, God's gift to you, to turn to Him. We don't turn, you and I, we don't turn people's hearts to Christ. But we can show them Christ's heart. And we can show them Christ's love. We can give them a taste of Christ. We can give them a taste that say that Christ is good, that Christ is lovely. 
We can give them a taste and have them see and touch through our actions and through our words. All in love. Particularly in this moment when people need to know they're loved and need to know love, need to know hope. We can show that to them through our actions and through our words. We can have them taste and see that the Lord is good. We can't turn their hearts, but we can show them. We can tell them. Like Jesus, we can meet people where they're at. We don't have to belittle them. We don't have to belittle their doubt or lack of faith. But we can seek to understand where they come from. Because here's the thing. We all doubt. And we've all come from doubt. And it wasn't our own doing to remove our doubt. We can build, like Jesus, long and intimate and loving relationships with people. It's not just popping into someone's life and telling them about Jesus and get them out like, well, we're saved. We can build long and loving and intimate relationships with people. We can show them the love of Christ through our presence, through our patience, through our listening. We can speak words to them. We can share our hope. We don't remain silent. Share your hope. Share it in love. But they ought to see Jesus' love for them through our love for them. They have to see patience in us. They ought to see kindness and gentleness and goodness. This is a matter of life and death for people. Jesus is love for them. And our love for them matters. It's a dividing line. This isn't something we ought to just give once and move on. Be with people and move on. No, this is long, enduring, patient relationship with people. Showing them love. It's something that everyone needs. The love of Jesus demonstrated and lived out in relationship. It's something that you and I need. When the world is falling apart, give them Jesus. When your friend's life is falling apart, give them Jesus. Give them your love. Let them see and taste that the Lord is good. When the world is falling apart, taste and see the goodness of Jesus. Taste and see the love of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the, resin of the, re I am the resurrection and the life. Be the resurrection and the life for them. Be the resurrection, the abundant life with them. Live out the resurrected life with them so that others may taste and see that the Lord is good and believe and that they may see the resurrected life and that they may see the resurrected Jesus that's right in front of them. Show them love so that you are gathering with Jesus and not scattering with your doubt and with your hate, and with your selfishness. Follow God. Let him turn your heart, and let him help you gather with his love for others.